Hello, everyone, and welcome to the In Defense of Plants podcast, the official podcast of InDefenseofPlants.com. What's up? This is your host, Matt. Welcome to the show. How is everyone doing this week? I hope you brought your swimming gear because today we are leaving the land and diving into the ocean to talk about seagrass. Now, to say seagrass that way sounds like there's one type. There's many. And my guest today studies the ways in which humans affect seagrasses, but also their impacts on the world as a whole, especially as it relates to things like carbon capture. Joining us to talk about this is Bridget Shaka, who has spent many years studying seagrass at various different scales. It's fascinating work and really hints at a beginning of a much more in-depth and nuanced picture of what seagrasses are doing, not only just in the Bahamas, but across the world. I'll let her do all that, but before we get to that, I just want to say this show could not be happening without support, and there's a lot of great ways to do that. One of the best ways is to go pick up some of our customizable merch. All you have to do is head over to indefensiveplants.com and click on apparel up at the top of the page or navigate to the show notes at indefensiveplants.com slash podcast where I put the link as well. All of our merch is customizable so you can find a style that works for you and all of it features great botanical imagery, many of which is super cool and vintage. Once again, this show can't happen without support and that is a great way to do it. But that is entirely enough out of me. I don't want to take any more time, so let's jump into it. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Bridget Shaka. I hope you enjoy. Right. Bridget Shaka, welcome to the podcast. I'm really excited to pick your brain today, but let's start off with an introduction. Tell everyone a little bit about who you are and what it is you do. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me. Um, I am a PhD candidate at the University of Michigan, and I study seagrass, um, mostly in the tropical places like the Bahamas. And I am really interested in carbon storage, but also in nutrient impacts from humans on seagrass ecosystems. Nice. So you get to, you know, enjoy all four seasons and then travel to the tropics whenever you're doing research. Not bad. Yes. <laughs> Sweet gig you find yourself. So speaking of finding yourself, how did this all begin? I mean, were you just a nature kid growing up? Were you like many of us wanting to be a marine biologist and seagrass just kind of took over from dolphins and stuff? Where did it all begin? Yeah, great question. There are a lot of dolphins, dolphin questions floating around. <laughs> <laughs> Naturally. Um, yeah, I've always loved being outside and, and going to the beach and being in the ocean. I grew up a swimmer as a kid, so I'm, I'm used to being in around the water. Um, and I still list all kinds of water activities as among my favorite hobbies. Nice. Um, but I didn't really know what being a scientist was. I mean, I definitely had a book of dolphins when I was in middle school. (laughs) Me too. Me too. Um, but yeah, I, I definitely didn't know what that meant in terms of my future. Um, I knew that I liked science. I liked being in the outdoors. And I always say that I, I realized in high school that I liked big science. So like not microscope science. <laughs> nice. um, and there are lots of really cool molecular and cellular things being done. Um, but what I was interested in was ecosystems and, and like walking around in nature and seeing how plants and animals interact with each other. and specifically how we interact with both of those components. Um, So that sort of drove me into environmental science generally. And um, when I was an undergrad, I went to the University of Virginia and I had a really cool opportunity to do a research um, and RU program over the summer as an undergrad on the Eastern shore of Virginia, where I was in a seagrass lab. And I got into it because I took a class with a professor I loved, Karen McLathery, and I mostly was interested because it was one of the few really marine science labs Mm. at the school. And I took her class, loved it, and basically did anything I could to start working in her lab. And that's what led me to the Eastern Shore to study seagrass. Um, and I loved it, but I think I decided seagrass was kind of boring, actually. Oh, no. <laughs> um, and I loved being in the ocean and and doing field work and all of that. Um, but I ended up pivoting a bit and studying coral reefs for my master's in California. Mm. Um, actually, to be clear, there are not coral reefs in California. Right, <laughs> um, right. But they were in the South Pacific. Um, but through the process of that, I, I came to know a bit more about... Um, marine ecology and all the cool components of it. And I actually ended up 
really studying algae. Mm. Um, so after I thought that seagrass was maybe too boring, I ended up studying algae, which turns <laughs> out is really cool. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Lessons learned, I guess. <laughs> yes. And then when I ended up um, searching for PhD labs, I found the one I'm working in now, which seemed really amazing. And um, the work in the lab is pretty broad and encompasses a lot of components of coastal ecosystems. And uh, my advisor said, do you want to study um, coral or seagrass? And I was like, you know, actually, I think I like seagrass again. Let's do it. Um, And I have loved every second of it since. So it definitely worked out for the best. (laughs) Just goes to show you, you can never predict this stuff. But it's cool to hear sort of the environmental science uh, being sort of the platform that all this was based on, because when you think about what that means, it's how we interact with the environment and how the environment responds to what we're doing and hopefully how we can fix some of those problems. And, you know, everywhere is touched by the human species. But I feel like the coast is more so than many ecosystems heavily impacted by human activities. And so it's it's neat to see how that interplay kind of came together to bring you to where you are today. It sounds like it all kind of worked out, really. Yeah, yeah, it is. It's funny to look back and think about how I didn't really know what I was doing each time necessarily that I made a decision in the long run, but it all came to leading me to be doing something I'm really enjoying. Nice. Well, we're going to unpack the thing you really enjoy doing right now, but I guess to start, seagrass, it's a broad term, right? I mean, we all have an image in our head. We've probably seen images on some level, whether that's on the internet or, you know, vacation, that sort of stuff. What is it? I mean, is it all one species? Are there species all over the world? I I realize it's probably way deeper than we need to go in it, but like, let's talk about seagrass on a broad level first. Yeah, that's awesome. I love starting with seagrass. I, my first question whenever I tell people or to me, when I tell people that I study seagrass is what is seagrass? And (laughs) Is it seaweed? Yeah. <laughs> um, and the answer is no. <laughs> oh. Um, so seaweed is algae. Um, they're yeah. sort of synonymous terms. People use them to mean like seaweed is maybe the big algae, macroalgae that sure. you can see, like kelp or things like that. Um, but those are different from seagrass. So seagrass is a flowering plant. Um, it's not exactly grass in the true grass sense of the word, like in your yard, but it looks a lot like it underwater, or at least some species do. Um, But it does have flowers and some of them are pretty cool, actually. Hmm. Um, And there are quite a few different species, although I would say compared to many, many other plants and plant groups in the world, it has fairly few species. And it's also pretty common for it to grow in, we call them either seagrass meadows or seagrass beds, um, in which there's only one species. Hmm. So, for example, in Virginia, um, off of the eastern shore and in the Chesapeake Bay, it's really dominated by um, Zostera marina, which is a temperate species that's really common in the Atlantic. And you can just find seagrass beds that are just an entire bed full of this one species. Wow. And there's probably other things growing in there, like other species of algae, like poking around. <laughs> um, but it's not like if you walked out into your backyard. Well, if you if you planted your backyard. Sure, yeah, some people seed. maybe. But um, but otherwise, there's actually going to be a lot of different kinds of plants and grasses and things growing out there. Yeah. Um, so that, I would say, is one thing that is fairly unique. In the Bahamas, where I mentioned that I work, it's pretty common to have either one species, the Lassia testudinum, which is turtle grass, that's hmm. the most common, um, or that species with one other, um, Cerangodium filiforme, which I would say is the next most common. Um, but there are a handful of other species that you see floating around in the Bahamas, um, like Halodule ridei. And so you can get like mixes of hmm. one to three species growing together with occasionally another random one, but it's Yeah. In terms of going out, if you're a scientist who likes to go out and identify things like in the woods, for example, this job is really easy. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. Very few options. But you did mention a few genera there, which I think is interesting. And they all kind of have this sort of, at least superficially, have a very similar morphology to them. Are they all from the same family at least? Or is this something that like a lot of different lineages kind of converged on a similar look? Yeah. So I think generally... People are thinking there are about two to three different 
events where seagrass evolved. They actually evolved, mm. um, we say back into the ocean, but right. they evolved from land plants. <laughs> yeah. So as opposed to land plants evolving from the ocean onto land, these came back into the ocean from land plants. Um, and they evolved a couple different times. And currently there are, are actually it changes, I feel like, every time I look, but four or five different families. Taxonomy. Um, <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, so a few different families. And I would say a, a large majority of the ones, especially the larger ones, do look a lot like grass, even if they're from different families. Mm-hmm. They have blades um, that are kind of flat. Um, but there are quite a few species that have slightly different blade shapes. So Syringodium, the um, second most common species that I see in the Bahamas, is, I would think of it as like chives. It's kind of a circular blade. Oh, cool. That grows up as opposed to being flat, like the Thalassia species that's there. And there are also a handful of species that are, they have sort of like little blades that look like mini leaves on a tree almost. Mm. Um, And they don't, when you look out into the seagrass beds often for those species in particular, it'll be a lot of sand with just some like little, little leaves all around. Nice. <laughs> um, so yeah, you can get um, slightly different morphologies between them and, and definitely different growing morphologies. Um, although they all tend to have rhizomes, which are like underground stems basically, and then shoots that come up off of them. Mm. Um, so I guess in addition to that, you can, not only have a bed that is all one species, you can also have seagrass beds that are maybe not even that many individuals. Oh, wow. Um, they actually are all just shoots coming off of one big organism. Huh. That's fun. I love that sort of how the environment shapes the organisms and what are those little micro conditions that, you know, maybe this blade shape benefits from or this establishment style benefits from. It's, it's really cool to think of like all the different ways this came to be, right? Yes, definitely. <laughs> and so when you go looking, say you're in the Caribbean boating around, like, is there a a type of habitat or area of the islands where you go looking for this sort of stuff or you can expect, if conditions are right, to find a seagrass meadow or bed or something to that effect? Yeah. Um, so seagrass is, it needs a lot of light. It's a plant. Um, mm-hmm. And so you're going to find it in fairly shallow places. So in temperate areas, that means like pretty shallow because the water gets murky fairly mm. quickly, um, maybe only to a couple meters, depending on oh, wow. the clarity of the water, honestly. Yeah. Um, but in the Caribbean, where you have really clear water, you can see seagrass to fairly deep. Um, the embayment that we go to most often is about 10 to 15 meters deep. Um, but you can get seagrass definitely deeper than that. Um, so I would say like shallow places where the light is actually reaching the bottom Mm. since these are plants with roots growing into the the ground. (laughs) Right. Um, and you know, maybe those are some of the most important things. (laughs) I was going to say near the coast, but that really, that is really only because it's shallow, I guess, (laughs) because you can get dispersal, um, there's there's a bank called Kisal Bank, which is part of um, the Bahamas banks, and it's between where like a lot of the Bahamas islands are and the bottom of Florida. And there's not a ton of necessarily islands right there. Mm-hmm. There are definitely like parts of it that are above water, but kind of just is sort of surrounded by deeper water and it has lots of seagrass on it. Nice. Nice. Yeah. So, yeah, really just that limitation of access to the star's energy. <laughs> yes. <Yeah. laughs> Very cool. And so obviously this is a huge topic. It's a huge ecosystem, covers vast area, which we will get to in a little bit. So how did you coming in as a student really start to bite off your chunk of that research? Where did you start to fit yourself in? Yeah, I I had been doing um, some research that involved nutrient enrichment on algae in my master's. Mm-hmm. And I found that that component of human impacts on coastal systems was really interesting to me. So I already started by thinking about the impacts of humans on seagrass, in particular relating to nutrients and nutrient runoff and things like that. Hmm. Um, So starting from that launching point, I was able to to really see what that meant for seagrass and and what kind of research people had been doing. Um, But one of the things that I found that was 
an interesting extension of that was instead of just thinking about how seagrass are affected by nutrients, which can be a bit complicated for the, for the seagrass ecosystems, um, is thinking about the fact that, especially in a world really affected by climate change, yeah. seagrass are one of those organisms that could potentially help us hmm. um, because they can store carbon. And the research around their ability to store carbon and what that means and what that means as an ecosystem and how that compares to other ecosystems is is really evolving because people don't tend to think about seagrass that much. Yeah. <laughs> as I mentioned, people don't even know what it is a lot of times. Right. Um, and so kind of combining those two things felt like a cool place to be starting and and really diving into seagrass research. Definitely. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, again, going back to what you kind of had have been talking about throughout this is just the human side of this is what we're doing to the coast, what we're doing to these ecosystems. And I kind of think about them similar to grasslands is that there's vast or once was vast areas of them. We realized way too late how important and how vital they are. And we're still trying to figure that out. And we've equally like grasslands treated them terribly. Right. I mean, there's a long history of whether directly or indirectly, not doing very good by seagrass meadows or beds. Yes. Yeah, definitely. I think, especially if people were thinking about boating originally, right. seagrass beds maybe just got in the way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and, um, and then if you weren't thinking about them, they were just, they just had lots of sediment dumped on them by coastal runoff or development mm. on the coast or... As I mentioned, they need a lot of sunlight. So if the water gets stirred up or if you dump a bunch of nutrients into the coast and there are, are algal blooms or mackerel algal growths, then they shade out the seagrass. Um, and so we can can definitely <laughs> definitely harm them in a lot of ways, whether we're thinking about it or not. <laughs> right, right. And so nutrients, I mean, that's something big to what you're doing and what many of your colleagues are doing. And it's hard to think of like, you know, living in the Midwest, for instance, you're going, oh, I'm so landlocked, I can't affect the ocean, but I've been to the Mississippi, I've been to the Ohio River, I've seen how the Midwest is contributing to dead zones and stuff like that. So when you say nutrients, I mean, it's a lot of different sources, right? And and obviously plants need nutrients, but there's a tipping point where that becomes too much. Yes, definitely. And that's especially true for seagrass because they... Although I mentioned you might just see one or a few species of seagrass in this hemisphere when you go to a meadow, um, there are lots of species of algae growing in and around. So these, these ecosystems do have other photosynthesizers growing in them. And um, nutrients are both really important and maybe not that helpful for seagrass. <laughs> so seagrass obviously need nutrients, just like any plant. So we're talking about things like nitrogen and phosphorus are the, are the big players here. Um, but algae also thrive off of nutrients and they can grow pretty quickly, um, especially people are fairly familiar, I think, with phytoplankton blooms, whether they know that's what they're called or not. If you right. see a body of water that's suddenly green yeah. or a beach or something like that. Um, but in addition, all those other kinds of algae that people think of as seaweed in a variety of contexts, they can also grow pretty quickly when you give them nutrients. So seagrass can be limited by a lack of enough nutrients, especially in places like the tropics maybe. Um, but if a coastal system gets too, too many nutrients, <laughs> too much nutrient input, then other things might start growing quicker than the seagrass and then they get shaded out. And so, yeah, you do kind of get this tipping point um, where you might, you might have too much going, going on in an embayment, especially if there's not a ton of, flow like water flow if it's in mm. a, a bay or a closed off area yeah and then you know this is an assumption so correct me if it's a incorrect one but i would assume that when you get those pea soup scenarios or like turbidity from too much sediment or you know you name it whatever makes the water cloudy you know a grassland can be disturbed but still be there there's still the players there but my assumption therefore is that because they rely so heavily on light being able to travel through water for them to photosynthesize that you can lose a lot very quickly when it comes to seagrass. Yeah. And seagrass ecosystems also have um, a cool attribute of 
sort of helping to, I guess, engineer their own great ecosystem hmm. conditions almost. Um, so if there are seagrass there, they are able to basically slow down the water above them a little bit. And if it's really tall seagrass, slow it down a lot. Um, and this is one of their great benefits in terms of like protecting coastlines and things, mm. but it's also helpful for themselves. So if you're slowing down the water, the slower the water, the the more particles and sediment that can kind of fall out of the water instead of being carried by it. So then it, it kind of clears the water up for itself, which allows the seagrass to have clear water and it can grow more. So um, the opposite is true also. So if you create situations in which seagrass are not able to thrive and they start dying off, then the seagrass are also no longer holding in the sediment with their big root structures and rhizomes. And so then the sediment can be disturbed more and then the water is even more cloudy. Mm. So it kind of creates this feedback cycle, which is um, also important in terms of thinking about carbon storage, right. which a lot of the carbon in seagrass ecosystems is stored in the sediment. So if you get these feedback cycles, which are both bad for seagrass living um, and bad for storing carbon, then you might have a lot of the carbon that's already there being released. Yikes. Yeah. I, the feedback loops scare the heck out of me because you could see how they get, they run away, can, can, can run away really quickly. But before we really get into the benefits of, of what, why preserving these things that are important how do you go about studying something like this? Because, you know, you're one person, you're working in one area and, you know, you can only cover so much ground. What is affecting nutrients and coastlines can often happen many hundreds of miles away, upstreams, up rivers, you know, in areas where you have zero influence or, or time to get to. So how as a grad student, are you even trying to understand this process? Yeah. Um, and that is a good point. I, my first thought when I think of that is always the Chesapeake Bay, partly because I think I just grew up near it. Um, right. But it has a huge watershed that encompasses a lot of different kinds of nutrients. Um, mm -hmm. And they all end up in this bay that we're getting like dead zones and things. But there used to be a lot more seagrass there, too. Dang. <laughs> um, and that's one of those things where it's, yeah, you have to think about like what you're studying and also what the impacts of it are and and how to make change. And so I think that's um, a little bit of two different things. So one of the benefits of where we do research in the Bahamas is that um, the Bahamas actually doesn't really have any rivers. Um, mm. It's mostly like coral originated islands. So a lot of carbonate sediments there. Mm. Uh, so you're not getting any tall topography or things like that. And so you don't have rivers in the same way that you do in the U.S., for example, that's that are like really carrying large catchments of water. Mm -hmm. Now, that doesn't mean they don't have nutrient inputs there from right. other things like just sewage going into the ocean <laughs> or or like coastal developments or things like that, whether the Bahamas or or other Caribbean islands. Yeah. Um, but so we're able to do work in in fairly nutrient poor areas. And also we can compare them to places with more nutrients, but that allows us to do things like conduct experiments where we can manipulate the nutrient situation and, and sort of compare different treatments and, and create situations that are, I was going to say hypothetical, but in some cases they're not, they're real. Sadly um, real, yeah. And so we can see the effects and learn from the different kinds of nutrient manipulations um, in terms of what those impacts are on the seagrass and then sort of transport those ideas to other places and say, okay, we did this experiment where, where, for example, one of the experiments I'm doing is manipulating different, um, levels of nitrogen and phosphorus and comparing how the ratios of them, for example, are affecting the seagrass. Like if we add a lot of nitrogen versus a lot of phosphorus, hmm. are we seeing differences? Um, so stay tuned for those <laughs> exciting results. Um, but then we can say, okay, so we've seen what happens when we manipulate nutrients in this way here and how it affects the seagrass. Now let's think about like places where that's happening. Maybe it's just up the island a little bit where the largest town is, or maybe it's in Florida where they have a bay full of seagrass that gets a lot of things from Florida. Or maybe it's 
big um, river systems or estuaries like the Chesapeake Bay. Hmm. And you're right, like I, as maybe one grad student, I'm not going to single-handedly change either all of the farming practices around the Chesapeake Bay or um, all of the runoff from Florida or even all of the outflow from Marsh Harbor. Um, but <laughs> but I think even um, like taking a paper like the one that I assume we'll start talking about in a second, thinking about like how much carbon is in an area and then combining that with what we know about nutrient impacts from the research we're doing and just telling people like these seagrass beds are important and valuable yeah. and and trying to convey that to the people who are the managers or the lawmakers or things like that. Um, and, and I think step one really is just like showing people how important seagrass are yeah. and that can, can then allow for further steps to be taken in terms of maybe something that I personally can't do, but can, can facilitate, which is reducing or modifying human impacts, including nutrient ones. Nice. Thank you for that perspective. That's really great to have always, you know, it's easy to get myopic and very focused, but always having that bigger picture. And it's cool that, you know, the, the, the conditions present just physically there in the Caribbean help you understand this. It's almost like a beautiful natural experiment set up for you in terms of being able to do those manipulations and make bigger generalizations about responses and that sort of stuff. Yeah, definitely. Cool. So yes, let's get into the meat of this. You mentioned carbon storage and it's why we connected today. And even I, as someone that like, I I like to think about carbon storage a little bit more than your average person, I'd say, but uh, you know, I'm always surprised when research like this comes out because when I think of carbon storage, I think of wood and I think of rich hummusy dark soils, not beautiful clear water, sand, you know what I mean? And so that in and of itself is kind of wild. You mentioned it's in the, like in and among the substrate they're growing in. How does carbon storage work in a seagrass meadow? Yeah. Um, it, so we talked a little bit about the different species at the beginning and I will throw a quick caveat that one of the things we're still learning about is the differences in the ability of carbon storage between maybe like the small little plants with the blades versus Hmm. Uh, in the Mediterranean, there's a species, uh, Posidonia oceanica, that has really deep root mats, um, and they have pretty tall blades, and they're they're known for being a really big species that takes up lots of area and having a lot of carbon storage. So I would say Thalassia falls um, about in the middle, which is, again, the most common species in the Bahamas, um, and they have, have fairly deep and dense root mats, root and rhizome mats that are able to trap sediment and um, things like that. And so basically where the carbon is coming from and staying is in the sediment. So that can either Hmm. arrive there through plants, like through the plant, through seagrass, um, like if they have biomass that gets buried without um, decomposing, once it gets low enough in the sediment um, because seagrass beds are, they're also underwater um, and they can can build layers on top of each other. Neat. You can get anoxic sediments, which slow down decomposition. Huh. So that's one benefit. Um, although I will say in the seagrass beds we're looking at, the biomass, the seagrass biomass, the plant parts are a fairly small percentage of the total carbon that's being stored. Um, but they can contribute to what ends up in the in the sediment pool once they're dead. <laughs> um, sure. Then, as I mentioned before, with them also being able to slow down water and allow sediment and and organic matter to drop out of the water, then that can also get built up in the sediment that they're trapping. And so you can kind of just build up over time these these layers of sediment and organic matter and carbon um, and as long as you're not having big disturbances, a lot of it can just stay down there for a long time, wow. maybe millennia. Um, and so there's there are a lot of components of that, I would say. Sure. <laughs> we can dig into some of them. Um, but in general, that's what we're seeing is is the ability of seagrass to like keep sediment in place 
and to trap carbon there um, can be really beneficial. I love that. It's the this sort of different mechanisms, right? Because it's underwater, but it, it just reiterates, gosh, plants are important. <laughs> <It's context. laughs> yeah. That's so cool. And to have sort of the ecosystem building processes going on um, that, that lend to that, not just the plants themselves, you know, it's, it's a lot of different things coming together. And it, I'm excited to see, you know, like you said, how do different species and, and the way they kind of manipulate or grow their conditions, how does that all factor in? So, you know, when you think about carbon storage and what that means, what did you set out to do? I mean, how... How do you get your head wrapped around that in, you know, a square meter, let alone a bed versus the Bahamas? You know what I mean? Yes. Yeah. And uh, and on a small scale, people are really starting to dig into this, which is exciting. Yeah. We're um, we're starting to see there's a lot of nuances to what um, carbon storage and um, the big word sequestration. So kind of like carbon being being buried um in, for example, a square meter looks like. So this can involve fluxes from like photosynthesis and respiration even to sediment physically being trapped um, to decomposition or lack thereof. Um, and all these processes can come into play in terms of like what all is going on in a square meter <laughs> gas. Um, but I, and I am doing some research on, on trying to, Think about at least some of those components. One of the one of the big parts of my dissertation, for example, is is really digging into what is happening below ground in terms of below ground biomass. So these roots and rhizomes that were um, that are so important to holding the sediment in place. And this is one of the things that that drove my interest in um, the paper that just, that we just put out on carbon storage is that I have spent a lot of hours and years, both underwater looking at seagrass and in the lab <laughs> looking at seagrass and looking at their roots and their rhizomes and trying to, trying to understand again, back to the nutrients, like how nutrients are affecting these, the biomass distribution here. Mm. Um, but taking that and then, and thinking also about the sediment and knowing that maybe I can really dig into these few experiments during my PhD and try and add just like a little bit more information to what is happening in a square meter. Um, but that really scaling that up is a lot bigger task. Yeah. Um, I wanted to take what I had seen and what I was learning um, and, and try to just express what was happening on sort of a coarse scale so that we didn't, it's not that I didn't want to wait for all the little bits and details to come in sure. because I know that they're all going to be really important um, and people are learning important things about all the details every day. But I kind of, like I said before, I, I just want people to know that they're important and to, to be starting there from the non-scientist perspective. And then I have no doubt that the scientists will keep filling in all the yeah. bits and pieces and honing in the numbers. Right. Um, but yeah, I wanted to, so in the paper, one of the, basically what we did was the goal was to quantify how much carbon is being stored in the Caribbean. Mm. And one of the big holes in, in a lot of the research around scaling up in this way is, is maybe not so much what's happening on the one meter scale. It's actually that we don't have very good distribution maps for seagrass in a lot of places. Wow. We know there's a lot of seagrass in the world. We also know a lot of it has disappeared due to human impacts, but we don't necessarily have like those numbers or those maps for a lot of places. Hmm. Uh, we're still discovering seagrass beds in the ocean, even though I mentioned they have to be fairly shallow. It's <laughs> wild to me. <laughs> um, yes. And we on this paper we worked with um, uh, some collaborators at the Nature Conservancy, and they had spent a lot of the recent years working to publish good maps of seagrass mm. um, distribution in the Caribbean. They also included other benthic habitats like coral reefs and things like that. But good as you know, I'm interested in the seagrass, right. so right. Keep it I just pulled the seagrass out of the maps. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I wanted to to take advantage of the fact that I was. I was underwater in the Caribbean looking at all the seagrass and the Nature Conservancy had just published these really good 
um, updated maps that were showing just how much seagrass really is in the Caribbean and sort of combine those to just show people that these things really are important. And there are lots of scientists working on all the details. Um, so you should care kind yeah, of. Yeah. Um, and it's been, it's been really fun. So yeah, we, for the paper we used already published, um, carbon numbers and use people have been doing, like I said, research on this. So whether that was the percent of carbon in a seagrass blade or the amount of carbon in a meter of sediment, Wow. we use those and kind of just scaled up. Um, we did a bit of sampling from distributions and and um, fun statistical things. But um, in the coarsest sense, we just scaled up to see like really how much carbon could be stored in these ecosystems. Um, and it's a lot, which is really <laughs> exciting. <laughs> That's cool. And yeah, I, I feel like if it's one of those things where if you were to be like, well, I'll wait, I'll wait till all the pieces are in, you, you die before, <laughs> like you would age out, right? Completely. It would never... Science doesn't work that way. And so what I love is this sets a baseline for one area and it gives us a, a chance to go, okay, we know what we know we're at here. You can always refine those numbers. That's what science is all about. But it's a, it's a massive effort that takes a lot of different people, but to put it all together in and of itself is pretty cool. And to go from sort of the, the really zoomed in work that you're doing more on the ground in the water, I should say, to yeah. being <laughs> able to back up and look at like aerial satellite imagery and figure out, okay, we're... Where's the extent of this? How much could we calculate? And, and like you said, scale up. You, you really, you spanned a big spectrum of possible foci, foci, ugh, words, uh, there <laughs> in trying to do this work. It's pretty remarkable. Yeah, I think this actually goes back to, again, like what we were talking at the beginning, which is that I've always been thinking about this from, from like the broad human impacts perspective, mm. kind of all of my science journey. And so even, even though I love like, doing the in the water things and being in the ocean and looking at the seagrass. I think I always, I always come back to, to like the broader perspective to frame my work anyway. And so taking it from a broader lens, um, maybe more physically <laughs> a broader lens um, made sense to me in terms of putting the work into context. So I, I definitely enjoyed maybe taking a step out of the lab for a second and thinking <laughs> about like what the impacts of the work that I'm doing are and can be, um, and, and what I'm really contributing to. Yeah. So it was fun to, to do that. That's great. So talk to us, what are the numbers you mentioned? They're big. I mean, how much is this area of the world's seagrass contributing to carbon storage? Yeah. Um, so one of the cool things is that, um, they, Let's see. So we can we can do like numbers. So like 1.3 petagrams of carbon. Um, and that oh. is <laughs> that is how much carbon could be stored there. Wow. Um, but that is, I guess, out of context. So that's not super helpful. Um, a few things that I um, like to compare to are people are really familiar with the Mediterranean yeah. when they think about seagrass, usually if, if they're in anything, if they know anything about seagrass, <laughs> right, right. they're maybe familiar with seagrass in the Mediterranean. And so that is actually on par with the um, amount of carbon that can be stored in, in the Mediterranean seagrass meadows. Um, but they cover a smaller area. So wow. the seagrass in the Caribbean is based on, you, you know, all of the air around the area numbers in both places, it could be um, two sure. to almost three times larger wow. um, area in the Caribbean than the Mediterranean. So when we think about um, the carbon numbers we're using are, are two one meter deep in the sediment. Um, mm -hmm. And when we compare all of the carbon up to one meter deep in the Caribbean to the Mediterranean, we're seeing potentially similar amounts of carbon storage, Dang. which is crazy when as I mentioned, you think about the aerial differences. Um, so that's pretty cool. Yeah. Um, and as, as like a big, uh, maybe something bigger that people are more familiar with something like temperate forests. Um, so if we think about all the temperate forests in the world, there are definitely more of those. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> but again, if we think about that, the plants and down to one meter deep, 
Then the carbon in the Caribbean is about 1% of that of temperate forests. And so 1% is maybe not that much, but if we're just thinking about one region of seagrass in the world compared to all the temperate forests in the world, that's pretty awesome. That's wild. (laughs) Yeah. It is always tough to mention small percents, but again, it's always in the backdrop of the the larger percent you're trying to compare that to. And that is massive considering, you know, uh, you, you could put your thumb over that area on a globe. You couldn't cover, you'd need many hands to cover temperate forests. <laughs> yes. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Um, and I think that's one of the cool things about this too, is not just we're seeing a lot of carbon being stored there, but this is a lot of seagrass area, like back to the point that we don't we don't even know where all the seagrass is um this is a lot of seagrass (laughs) um it could be depending on how the rest of the world fleshes out in terms of where the seagrass is it could be a third or half is maybe a big jump but based on some of the numbers we have right now it could be up to that much of the percentage of seagrass in the world which is kind of crazy also (laughs) i mean especially when you consider how few people think about this ecosystem or how little it's how little is known even from those people that do regularly and you know there's a lot of cries for forest conservation rightfully so there's a lot of cries or growing cries for grassland conservation rightly so i hear trickles maybe about seagrass and and most of the time it's because boaters get annoyed like you said so thinking about the impact of what you've been able to calculate as we estimate it now, and those numbers can be refined, but it's not going to be much smaller. You know what I mean? It's, it's, we're only going to appreciate it more. And that is wild to me to think because that is a ton of carbon that's not going into our atmosphere, which is the thing we're fighting so hard to slow, let alone reverse. Yes, absolutely. And I think that's one of the points about of a lot of the science still trickling in and like we're learning about seagrass beds is is sort of the debate on like on a for example a per meter squared basis like what are the fluxes of carbon there like is a seagrass meadow in this area like pulling carbon out of the atmosphere on a net annual basis versus releasing it and like that question is really important and in a lot of places I'm sure that it is and it's (laughs) and so in that sense, it's really important to be preserving those ecosystems. But on another, on the other hand, like even if, I mean, even if a seagrass ecosystem is technically net releasing carbon dioxide, for example, based on all of the photosynthesis respiration fluxes that are happening there, that doesn't mean that the carbon that's already stored in those sediments is uh, negligible. Right. Like we- Still need to protect the seagrass right. because if you lose the seagrass there, all that carbon is now going to be released into the atmosphere. Yeah. Um, and so that is, I think on any level, we should be thinking about seagrass conservation. Yeah, totally. Because again, we're working with what's in our atmosphere now. And what we're fighting against is 300 plus million years ago, carbon being also added to that. So those net negatives are still good because it means it's working with what it's got. It's not contributing more like we are. (laughs) Yes, that is for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Heavy thoughts. And I mean, even if carbon storage isn't something you care about or think about, you know, maybe you enjoy fishing or maybe you enjoy clean water. You know what I mean? There's a lot of other benefits to thinking about why these ecosystems matter, right? I mean, from a just a pure fisheries perspective, I can imagine they're hotbed nurseries for fish and invertebrates, that sort of stuff, too. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Seagrass beds are really amazing for a lot of reasons, but fisheries is another really good one. Um, They are nurseries for fish, like growing fish that will ultimately end up on in other places like coral reefs that are near them. Um, But they also are important for lots of major invertebrates, like in the Caribbean lobster and conch, for example, are really dependent on seagrass habitats. And a lot of fish or larger roaming fish or predators, or I recently saw some shark species are pretty um, attached to seagrass beds as as a habitat and sea turtles, of course, and manatees, (laughs) things that people can relate to and love (laughs) looking at at least. (laughs) Um, And so 
just in terms of what's living there and what's growing there and and what these um, what part of the life cycles of a lot of organisms these ecosystems play, they are really important. Um, especially in terms of like connectivity between different ecosystems. So mangroves and seagrass and coral reefs really exchange a lot of organisms, um, basically. Things grow up in one place and live in another place between the three of them. And so they, huh. they're they definitely an important component of, of that set of ecosystems. Yeah, really exciting. I mean, to know that. And hopefully, like you said, throughout all of this is is how can you make an impact? And I, I love this paper because boy, does it make an impact <laughs> and it's only going to get better, right? As you move along through your career and collaborate with others. But, you know, now that you've had this, it's out there, it's getting attention. I feel like that for a lot of people would be like, all right, pat yourself on the back. I did it. Let's go home. But like, you're still in grad school. You have a career ahead of you. Like, where do you want to see this going from your perspective? Obviously, many people still working on it in different ways. But for you specifically, how do you want to see this kind of research evolve? Yeah, I I think that I maybe have two answers to that. Um, the first one is really in terms of like the impacts of this paper in particular. Um, one of the big things that um, I found valuable from this paper is that 61% of the seagrass in the Caribbean is in the Bahamas, um, which is also where I do a lot of my work. Um, and I would say that maybe on a personal note, I, I would love to see like that have an impact. Like the Bahamas has so much seagrass yeah. and it's so valuable. And I would love to see that become an important component of how they're thinking about both their resources and the science that can or um, has been happening in and around their seagrass beds or their country in general. Mm -hmm. um, it's it's a really amazing place, and obviously I care about the seagrass a lot. Um, but it's I I definitely can say that that would be that would be a really cool and tangible impact of this paper in particular is that it it's emphasizing how much seagrass is in the Caribbean, but even more importantly, how much of that is in the Bahamas, and so seeing the impacts of that would be um, really awesome. Yeah. Um, and then the, I think the second answer to that question is maybe more of, of like where this research in general could be going in terms of the scientific community. And I think there are so many unanswered questions about what is happening within seagrass beds, whether that's in terms of photosynthesis and respiration rates, or it's what is going on with the roots or even how do these communities respond to different kinds of human impacts? Nutrients, of course, are interesting to me, but, but there are plenty of other ways that humans are impacting coastlines. Um, and so I would love to see people just keep building on this and, and allow us to refine the numbers that we hmm. put out in this paper to say, yeah, we know that this is where the state of seagrass ecology is right now, but let's get better. Let's figure out where the seagrass is. Let's figure out what these carbon storage numbers are in more specific locations or things like that. Wow. Incredible. Yeah. And what's cool is, you know, you've seemingly really positioned yourself well to be able to explore all levels of that from heavily focused to satellite imagery about as far away as you can get, right? Or big picture, I should say. And uh, everything in between. And it just kind of seems like throughout your career could be flavor of whatever week, month, year of like, I would like to study this now. I want to try this. Let's zoom in a little bit. I want to get back underwater kind of thing. So well done. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true. I definitely position myself to, to go in any of the directions. <laughs> right. And again, research like this, goes far beyond the scientific community. I mean, whether you care about carbon storage or nutrient loss from arable land farther up in the Midwest, that sort of thing, or fisheries or, you know, areas like the Bahamas, you think of like the tourism industry, how much they rely on the beauty and clarity of the water and the ecosystem that it supports. Like this work affects a lot of things. And the more we understand it, the better off we can do better, right? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. I think once this happens with, I think, any ecosystem I start thinking about, but especially seagrass, as soon as you start thinking about one of the cool or interesting or beneficial components of that ecosystem, you realize that 
there are a million other things and they're all related to each other. Um, like protecting seagrass because you care about the carbon storage protects all of the other things that seagrass do or protecting seagrass because you care about the fisheries protects all of the other things that seagrass do. Um, right. And I think that no matter, I don't personally care which perspective you come at it from. <laughs> I yeah. obviously am telling you how much carbon there could be in it. Um, but as long as it's resulting in seagrass conservation or restoration, you're getting all of the benefits, which is really amazing. Wonderfully put. Well, Bridget, this is incredible. Thank you so much for talking to us about it, but also thank you for the work that you're putting in to understand this. It's no small effort. And uh, if people want to keep a finger on the pulse of your work, where your career is going, where do you recommend they go looking? Um, great question. <laughs> um, right now, I'm in the Allgaier Lab at the University of Michigan. So Jake Allgaier is my advisor. Um, and you can see all sorts of the cool work that we do um, on our lab website. And then... From there, maybe I'll get back to you when I That's fine. think about what my next steps are. <laughs> cool. Well, you are welcome back on at any time. Uh, I can't wait to see what you know is in store for you and what comes out of the work that you and your colleagues are doing. But again, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us about it. We really appreciate it. Yeah, no problem. Thanks again for having me on. This was a lot of fun. Of course. Well, stay in touch. But in the meantime, good luck out there. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Cheers. Cheers. All right. Incredible stuff. I always walk away from these conversations with so many new things to look up and read about. And I thank Bridget for taking time out of her very busy schedule to talk to us about the importance of seagrasses. And reminder, she studies seagrasses in the Bahamas. Now imagine seagrasses all over the globe. And as she pointed out, we really don't understand their extent. So I really thank her and her colleagues for taking the time to chip away at what is a very, very important ecosystem. As always, all the relevant links can be found over at indefensiveplants.com slash podcast. Just navigate to the show notes for each episode. That's where you'll find them. While you're over there, look at all the different ways you can support this show because it can't happen without support. You can pick up a copy of my book, some of our customizable merch and stickers. You can also become a patron over at patreon.com slash indefensiveplants. Whichever way you choose, I thank you in advance because, again, I couldn't be doing this without support. But that is enough out of me. I thank you all for listening. Make sure to hit that subscribe button and keep checking back in. But until next time, hang in there, stay healthy, and get outside if you can. This is your host, Matt, signing out. Adios, everyone.